You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. This morning, I invite you to turn once again to the letter of Colossians in the New Testament continue in this text we've been studying. And as you're finding it, let me mention uh, just a plan for next week. I, I expect not to be with you next Sunday. My wife and I hope to have the privilege of being in central Wisconsin for the ins- installation service of a former assistant pastor here, Chuck Walton, at a PCA church in, a, you've all heard of the great town of Pardeeville, Wisconsin. If you've, if you've actually heard of it, raise your hand. I'm, oh, there's somebody here that's been to Pardeeville. Wonderful. Well, it's north of Madison, Wisconsin. We expect to be there. We're rejoicing that Chuck and Aaron are beginning a new ministry. We'll be on our way to Orlando. Where the great That's right on the way to Orlando, you know, when you go to Wisconsin, but to uh, General Assembly. And I just wanted to tell you that uh, as that happens next Sunday, we're doing something a little unusual. We've invited Sister Church Pastor... Reverend Tom Nicholas, to do a pulpit exchange. Dr. Light is going to be in Ephrata at his church next Sunday, and Tom Nicholas will be our preacher here at both services at Westminster next Sunday morning. Hear God's Word as I read it now, and I hope you, perhaps you've been with us, you have some idea of the flow of thinking as Paul is describing the new life in Christ here and giving practical directions about it. Listen as I read Colossians 3, beginning at 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with all gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I ask you to think today about how clothing and fashions are an expression of our persona, our character, who we are, who we think we are, how they actually are extensions of a face that we want the world to see about us. You can think of many characteristic situations where people had clothing that expressed them. For some reason, comedian Bill Cosby comes to my mind as he would begin his his wonderful TV show of years ago, with, and he would be wearing either a college sweatshirt of a college he wanted to somehow feature or a designer sweater. And one of those two outfits were Bill's trademark. 
I think of our new president wearing well-tailored suits and fine ties that probably cost $75 a piece, but yet he seems to be most at ease when he takes off the suit coat and rolls up the sleeves and, and gets casual. People establish themselves somewhat by the things that they wear and their appearance. And we recognize people by characteristic clothing in which they do present themselves. I often get comments from people on the fact that I wear this robe called a Geneva robe in the pulpit on Sunday mornings, representing a 500-year-old tradition of Reformation faith, the calling of the minister to carry and and speak from the authority of the Word of God. Certainly the robe bears nothing magical about it. It's simply a tradition. And I hear it derided as being too formal by some people whose brilliant alternative is that a Hawaiian shirt represents the better way for a preacher to stand for the office of ministry. Until I'm convinced of that or see the Hawaiian shirt, and don't go buy me one, uh, and I see the Hawaiian shirt that really fits me, I'll stick with this. You know, we have a mental picture in our minds, our heads of Jesus Christ. The Sunday school literature shows us what he probably could have looked like. At least we have no photographs, but what he might have been dressed like as a first century man in a long flowing robe with a belt about the waist. And we wonder what the Bible's talking about when it tells us to clothe ourselves like Christ. I would think it should be obvious to you that it's not saying you need to adopt his first century wardrobe. It doesn't really have to do with physical fashion or a uniform. But there is a wardrobe of Christ that is to be worn by a Christian man or woman that consists of distinctive, recognizable character attributes. And those character attributes originate in the new birth of faith in Christ as the Holy Spirit indwells us, and they are developed and hopefully become more and more externally visible as we live with Christ. There comes to be a warmth and winsomeness, a humility, a gentleness, something outstanding that isn't natural to the behavior of most people in this world when Christ truly indwells and gives that living hope, that great calm that we have in Him. Now, I just remind you for context briefly that in our study of Colossians, we have heard Paul assert that the believer in Christ really, in a true sense, died with Him at the cross, died to the enslavement of the old sinful nature, and that we truly rose with Him into a new life. And so for a few verses now, we've been looking at Paul saying, what do we do to assert that new life that we have, to claim it? Well, we're to set our minds on it. We're to train ourselves to think about how the Scripture reveals it. Last time, we are to literally reject, even in a violent way, and put to death things that contradict that new life. And now, (coughs) the text moves in a more positive direction in talking about putting on or taking on or enhancing attributes which uniquely belong to Christ. And all this, of course, is assuming that we have indeed died with Him and have a new life in Him. Now, in the first place this morning, with time shorter here, with the Lord's table before us, look at verse 12 and see a first point here that I think it says that authentic 
imitation of Christ is indeed possible for those in whom he dwells. You can dress up like a person. You can try to resemble a person by some kind of outward skin or outfit without becoming the person. I have a grandson who absolutely loves Spider-Man. And he has Spider-Man everything. You know, Spider-Man underwear. Spider-Man suit from head to toe. He looks like Spider-Man. And I'm sure that my little grandson, when he wears that suit, thinks he is the webbed wonder. And yet, I haven't yet observed, at least if it's going to happen, it hasn't begun to happen, that putting on this suit enables my little grandson to climb up the vertical face of of skyscrapers or swing by 100-foot webs from one building to the next, the way the cartoon character Spider-Man does. He wears the costume, but he isn't Spider-Man. When you are Christ's man or woman from within, you have his identity already upon you. The question is whether you will give yourself to the development of that identity allowing it by obedience to the Word of Christ more and more to show itself through you. Be very clear, Paul is not writing here some general advice to society at large to say, I think it would be nice if all of you behaved like Jesus. You know, we have that phenomenon out there of the bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? Well, that's not altogether a bad thing to think about what the decisions or behavior of Christ might be. But Paul here is not presenting a credo for the world at large, society at large, to simply to try in their actions to mimic Jesus. We're not being told, make your best best effort by works to live the way Jesus did since he was the grandest man, the greatest moral example that ever was. He was that, but that's not what's being pleaded for here. Paul is not even addressing society in general. In verse 12, if you would read it, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, as his holy ones, what does holy mean? Set apart. As those who've been dearly loved in Christ, you are the ones I'm calling to clothe yourselves with these very attributes of Jesus Christ. And what is listed here are all these things that would have characterized Jesus himself. Romans thirteen fourteen is another verse that is even more explicit and says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. He dwells in you is the logic here. So how very obvious and understandable it would be since Christ is your life, as verse 4 of this chapter has already said, and you are a vessel in whom he dwells, how obvious that his character should be leaking out in your character and showing in your life in many ways. And so we have this list of five character traits. I'm not going to dwell on each word and try to develop it. I'd rather you just take them as a whole today. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Now these are God-like qualities. These actually are the qualities by which God himself has come and authored salvation for us and sent his son into this world, not 
you could say, well, there are other qualities of God, strength, omniscience, omnipotence, wrath. You know, I know all those things about God. Yes, but here's a summation of God as Savior or Redeemer, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. These, you see, are the kinds of qualities that made Jesus himself stand out as a man on the earth when he lived in the first century, when, when he was among other people and he moved and he taught and he acted. And he didn't do the things people just expected a man normally to do. They were constantly saying, why, we never heard anybody like this. Well, look at what that man's doing. He's so unique. He stands out. He's, he's one of a kind. And in fact, you know, you could take the polar opposite of these five traits in verse 12 and try to come up with a word that is, if you learn middle school students what an antonym is in English, the opposite. What would the antonyms be? Why, it might be lack of caring, rudeness, arrogance, cruelty, impatience. Now, when you say those things, you see what you've done, and I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. You've just described the way I was born into this world without those godlike qualities. <coughs> so if the qualities of verse 12, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, are going to be seen in me, it's not going to be because I was born that way. It's not going to be because my parents were like that and they trained me to be like that. It's really going to be because God has planted the seed for these character attributes. This is a part of Christ in me, developing and being seen. Just as Jesus perfectly put these characteristics before the human race, we are putting on Christ, or you might say letting Christ be revealed in us as we grow in consistency with the merciful, patient, gentle character of our God as he shapes us and changes those who are his people of faith. So it's certainly possible for us to be changed this way. But secondly, after asserting that it's possible for us to wear the Savior's character in growing ways after we belong to him, Colossians goes on, verses 13 to 16, and Paul sort of gently admonishes here about practical ways that we can literally put on articles of Christian clothing to look more like Christ. Hands-on, specific behaviors we can do to implement, or maybe we can even check ourselves a little bit on these things to see if we are being clothed like Christ. And in the short time I have, I want to mention each of these four. First, in verse 13, he says, forgive others in the same manner as you were forgiven at the cross. Now, already today, you've repeated the Lord's Prayer. The words fall out of your mouth. You don't always think about them, but you've said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Father, I pray that there be a cycle that your forgiveness would come upon me and cause me to be forgiving to others and and you would forgive me and I would forgive others and the cycle would just go on and on. Now, this is not an unknown thing or a new thing to you. But it should be something that causes us frequently to cringe at the disparity between the dump truck loads of mercy that God heaps on us alongside the little teaspoon measures 
of forgiveness or grace to anybody else that we measure out in response. 1 John 3.16 says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. What does that mean? Are we supposed to go to a cross and die for them? I don't think so. But I think we are to show them the Christ-like grace of forgiveness that we have so richly taken in. Christ establishes not just a pattern to forgive others, but the practical ability to do it when we ask him. And we have to ask because the ability doesn't come easily, does it? We have to say, Lord, help me deliberately let go of wrongs done against me under the blood of Jesus and in the power of the cross. If you're not, you see, then you're saying this. You may not say this out loud, but you are, your actions are saying this. You're saying, I expect God to forgive me, but I don't agree that other people are as worthy of being forgiven as I am. Oh, I'd never say that. You say, well, you're showing that if you cannot forgive as Christ has forgiven you. If you're harboring some wrong and saying, why, that, that was just too great. Unless they take the first step, unless they do this, I can't. Stop yourself. Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. Are you really bearing with that person and forgiving grievances you may have against one another and forgiving as Christ has forgiven you? It's an admonition to God's people. And it's really a reproduction of the behavior of Jesus. It's part of the garment of Christ that his supernatural grace helps us to wear. It doesn't come naturally to us. A second way to dress like Christ is found here in verses 14 and 15. Put on love, which binds together the other virtues in perfect unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of his body you are called to peace. I think that the Christian congregation, the family of Jesus Christ, whether it's formal membership in it or, or participation in whatever way you do, in some body of Christ as a worship congregation, as a home fellowship, in all these ways, is a kind of laboratory in which God says, look, you better learn to seek unity and love and charity among those who have like precious faith. If you can't learn it there, I don't know how you're ever going to learn it. You need to pursue after peace with other people. Last week in verse 8, we were told one of the correctives to this is to put to death angry words and malice and slander. Watch what's coming out of your mouth. Is your speech simply antagonizing other people or running people down or belittling them? Or is it deliberately the kind of speech that blesses other people and encourages and gives a kind word or an inquiry and and shows interest? This text says, let the peace of Christ rule in you. You are at peace with God in Christ. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. God and you are no longer at war. Let that peace have a kind of function like an umpire in your life and say, how can I decide to be peaceful? In this situation. Now, that doesn't mean you simply lay down and you never speak a strong opinion or you never, you know, you let everybody walk all over you or anything of that kind. But it means that in doing it, in speaking your strong opinion, you do it respectfully, you do it in love, 
You do it constructively. You do it to build up unity. Ephesians 4.3 says, make the effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A third practical way to be clothed with Christ this morning is at the very end of verse 15, and it just consists of three English words, and be thankful. You can almost slide right over those, can't you? And be thankful. In fact, Paul mentions thankfulness a number of times in Colossians as a deliberate choice for you to continually strive to cultivate, because once again, like forgiveness, it's not a natural endowment. It's not a natural behavior. Natural spiritual behavior of the unredeemed man or woman is, is that which is always tied up in knots, saying, God, why didn't you do this? God, why don't you change this? God, you haven't explained this to me. How are you thankful when you're in that state of mind? When what you bring to God is, is like a spiritual pretzel, all twisted up, saying, God, you've got to explain things here, and until you get this straightened out, I can't worship you. How much better to come and say, oh, God, there are many things I don't understand. I, I wonder over what's happening here in this situation of suffering, and I don't have your answer in this thing, but, God, I spread my hands before you, and I say, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for this world. Thank you for the blessings, the relationships, the nurturing things in my life. You know, if you could prescribe, I think maybe if Pastor Light could prescribe some biblical counseling therapy for those people who are always maybe coming to his office and all tied up in knots and saying, why is God doing this? I'm not happy. God has to explain himself. Here's Pastor, I didn't even ask him, but I'll say this is Pastor Light's prescription. He might say, look, For 15 minutes a day, for the next two weeks, I want you to have a specific session of prayer. Okay, I think I can manage 15 minutes. But here's what you have to do. Everything you pray within the frame of 15 minutes has to fit after these words. For this, O Lord, I thank you. That's all you're allowed to pray. For these things, 15 minutes worth, O Lord, I thank you. Come back in two weeks and see me. I'm telling you, some people would come back really changed because for the first time in their lives, they would have to begin to see and enumerate and list and and pour out, and I believe it would get easier every day that they did it as they began to thank God, pouring out gratitude for God's graciousness rather than emphasizing the, the petty issues and the strife and the anger and the division. The fourth admonition here, The fourth article of clothing of Christ is in verse 16. It deserves a sermon all of its own, but won't get it today anyway. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. In a nutshell, this is about worship. Worship both by the word spoken and taught and worship in music as we sing. As singing Our praise expresses things that mere teaching and admonition can't do. I believe Paul is clearly acknowledging that here in the variety of song that we bring, the the notes of our heart that that expresses. Paul's saying you've got to be in worship. Worship is going to keep God's Word flowing through you and flushing out all of the cacophony of everyday worldly thinking and noise. That kind of stuff is going to take you over unless... You're deliberately worshiping, and God's Word is flowing in you. 
So we close for now with verse 17, concluding, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Here it is again, thankfulness through him. This means writing the name of Christ large upon our lives. I had a little thought about these Colossians as I was studying this text, and no commentator mentioned it, so maybe I'm off base. But I know when you study Colossae and you learn about what kind of a town it was, you will find out that the weaving industry was big there. There were a lot of weavers who produced cloth and garments and clothing. Isn't it interesting? Is Paul possibly making a little play on words for their sake here when he talks about clothing yourself with these things? You might say he was telling them to live lives that are woven from a whole piece of cloth. I remind you of the theme he said in verse 6 of chapter 2. Just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue living in him a seamless life. Continue living in him, rooted and built up in the faith and overflowing, oh, there it is again, with thankfulness. When you do things in the name of Christ, it doesn't simply mean you come up on, you show up on Sunday morning and say, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. You need to do that. But you need to go out with your whole life, all the week, being one part of that seamless piece of cloth, seeking the honor of Christ, acting on the revealed will of Christ, not compartmentalizing your life into segments where he is Lord and other segments where he's not. When Christ is the core of your life, your character will inevitably, his character will impress itself on yours. And I would say it this way in one sentence. Living buckets that are full of Christ cannot help but overflow. May he be praised. Father, help us to search our own character as we come to your table. And we know we'll be found wanting. But we thank you also that the grace that calls us to these things is available to forgive and change and start anew. So we look to you now with praise in Jesus' name. Amen.